Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to co-founders and directors of School of Calisthenics, Tim Stevenson and David Jackson. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I am absolutely delighted to get these two guys on who I have huge respect for. So they've got got huge respect for them, one, because they're great guys, and two, because of what they've built in the School of Calisthenics as a business and a brand and everything that goes around, the quality of their products, the quality of their presentations, the quality of their delivery, as you'll hear in two or three minutes, the quality of how they speak and the information they give, just everything about these guys fills me with so much respect for them. So in this episode, we start with um, speaking to, to Tim and Jacko about the vision of School of Calisthenics, where it came from, the background, etc. Then we, then we move on to Building Bulletproof Shoulders, which was a presentation that they, ge- that they gave at the UKSCA conference in 2018, which I thought was absolutely excellent. They've replicated that and taken it to a couple of places in pro sport and delivered um, that presentation again to help with certain clubs and... Um, and certain organizations with their shoulder health of their athletes, as we'll speak about in this episode. Then we move on to uh, progressions and regressions with calisthenics and the benefits of using calisthenics and where that fits into the wider, uh, wider strength and conditioning program. Some of the transfer of strength to, to sports performance and then finishing off with core stability training and the... the um, the discussion around isolated work and then some progressions and regressions around that so it's going to be an absolutely fantastic that i'm sure you love and there'll be plenty of uh, note-taking needed and plenty of things to take away for you to um to utilize with your athletes tomorrow so enjoy the episode with tim and jacko this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to help them consistently achieve the highest levels of performance by increasing the impact of their data. So over 200 teams across the globe rely on Kitman Labs' performance intelligence platform to quantify the cost of performance and injury and receive the right insights at the right time. Through unique outcome-driven analytics and the most advanced athlete management system, teams can align their organizations around a shared view of what it takes to drive performance and health and move at the speed of sport to adjust and continuously improve. If you want to know more about Kitman Labs, head over to www.win.kitmanlabs.com forward slash impact. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, 
real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with Tim Stevenson and David Jackson from the School of Calisthenics. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this morning, I'm delighted to welcome Tim Stevenson and David Jackson from the School of Calisthenics. So welcome to the podcast, guys. Hey, uh, how you doing? Thank you for coming on. Really appreciate it. Apologies for the very, very annoying technical issues, but... We'll crack on, we'll crack on. But thank you for coming on. Um, so I'm going to come to you, Tim, first, just because it's the first on the um, on the list. No no favouritism here, of course. Hey, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll come to you, Tim, first. Anyone that um, doesn't know who you are, I just want to give us a quick run-through of what you've done previously, education-wise, and what where you fit in the School of Calisthenics. Yeah, sure. Um, so I've... Being a strength and conditioning coach from for about last last eleven years, um, I started out with an internship um, working with a company called Sport Nine Eight One. Did a lot of my first early years, about five six years in university setting, um, and that was a, was a great sort of um, proving ground and cut my teeth, if you like, in that in that setting where you've got uh, twelve performance teams, twenty TAS athletes. I probably coached something like thirty different sports while I was there because of the variety you get in university sport um, and at the same time I'd, uh, for my UKSCA case study I actually started working with a, a Paralympic athlete a guy called Richard Whitehead double leg amputee um, and that sort of launched me into Paralympic sport which has pretty much become um, a specialism I suppose over the last sort of yeah say 12 years um, and then five years ago Jack and I started just playing around with some calisthenics um, just for something a little bit different. I've had some shoulder injuries in the past and I was trying to find a way to stabilize a repeatedly dislocating shoulder that had two surgeries and, and none, none of the physio stuff had worked. So in, a, in my logical mind, decided that if I could learn to handstand, that would give me some confidence that my shoulder was a bit more stable. Um, and, and yeah, hence found my way into sort of bodyweight training and and it sort of grew from there, really. And Jacko had just finished playing rugby around the same time and was doing bicep curls in the gym. And I roped him into trying to teach him to do some, uh, some bodyweight training. And we just kind of fell in love with it. And uh, we were awful when we first started. Um, but the, we eventually sort of put some time in and um, started to progress what we were doing in our own training. And then other people sort of started asking if we'd teach them. And we, we sort of the school of calisthenics was very much born from from there really um just i'll let jacko jump in in a, in a second but um in terms of education wise I, I did my master's degree in 2015 uh in exercise physiology and then was also just a part of the um british team at the rio 2016 paralympic games running the holding camp for those guys in Belo Horizonte, and then also into the competition venue with with swimming so it's a bit of a, a sort of all over the place history but um yeah, there's some some familiar threads that sort of like connect it all together. Nice. Just before we do get on to Jacko, who were your initial influence influences in the calisthenics world? Uh, the first person that we ever saw in calisthenics was Frank Madrano. Um, mm-hmm. He's got a video on on YouTube with uh, 
multiple millions of, of hits. And I remember seeing it and thinking it just looked unbelievable. I'd not really seen a guy move like that before. Um, and I think one of the interesting things in the early days from where I'd come from, a lot of my early sort of qualifications in strength and conditioning were with the National Academy of Sports Medicine. And I still really like their training system and, and their philosophy around um, understanding like sort of functional movement, the, the principles of functional anatomy and how that then transpires into effectively being able to coach any sort of movement. Um, but a lot of it had been, as typically as we are, you sort of strength endurance training, hypertrophy, power training. And bodyweight training originally is sort of, it always been, I guess, classified as what beginners do. Um, and never really kind of, in my philosophy, I don't think stood aside, stood alone as sort of a really effective and um, progressive system that you could use within a strength and conditioning program. And the, the, the reason was probably because I just not really explored it and didn't understand the depth of it. And then when I saw Frank Madrano the video I was I just uh yeah it blew me away and I thought I need to sort of understand a bit more about this and, and partly it was for my own training but also to help just um another component for my training program with athletes what else what other tools have I got as a strength and conditioning coach in the locker that you can start to use with athletes to help them to perform nice so we'll come on to the vision and the kind of resource that you guys offer at, at school of Calis, thanks but over to you Jacko bit of background uh, yeah, so um, David Jackson, or known as Jacko, um, my I played uh, professional rugby for uh, in the championship for about I think about eleven, twelve years um, before I had a head injury that ended my career slightly early. I was thirty-one at the time, so I was on my way out, um, and that was yeah, that was six years ago. Um, I met Tim at the same time through a friend of ours at church. They introduced me to someone that had uh, in the SNC world that was that was local, and um, I basically sort of went on a, a, a journey of going out of professional sport into into a new a new job. I'd always loved uh, training and trying to understand a little bit about it, and so SNC for me um, was a was a good fit. I'd not done anything um, at, like at university. I'd done uh, a master's of materials engineering, so nothing sport related, but I guess science related. Um, and yeah, went through, uh, did the same uh, training that Tim had done with Sport Nine Eight One, but worked under the tutelage, I guess, of of Tim. I didn't have a uh, any sort of burning desires, particularly to work in. Paralympic sport at the time it was it was just that that's where he was specializing in what it what it turned out to be was a, a fast track to understanding the body and the training and how this all fits together uh, a little a little more quickly because we weren't I wasn't able to whatever what I was sort of learning say in the classroom or from the textbook it's then another step to then apply that into the, the Paralympic athlete that may have some sort of impairment that we've got to change things up. So um, for me at the time, I was doing a lot of learning, uh, which I do love, uh, but it, it definitely felt like that's helped me. And, you know, with, with Tim's tutelage has helped me to get to a level in the last sort of five, six years uh, that I probably wouldn't have done if I'd have just stayed in a traditional, or is that just how I feel in a traditional uh, environment and and I, I sort of mentioned that because what we ended what we've ended up doing with with school of calisthenics was as tim mentioned trying to learn it ourselves at first um particularly found it motivating to do something a little bit different i'd got i'd always wanted to carry on training when i'd finished playing rugby but i got 
bored very quickly of doing the same things I'd always done. So for me, it was about doing something different and trying to learn to do something new with my body. And then as Tim said, we started to see what elements of this can can really benefit uh, the athletes that we're working with, particularly sort of overhead and throwing athletes and the swimmers. Uh, there's a lot of crossover and benefits. So things that we found were helping, uh, we, we started to sort of drip feed into, into programs where appropriate. And um, the athletes loved it as much as we did because for those same things that are around it being motivating, about it being interesting, just a little bit different. And it's sort of, I guess it's just grown and grown and grown from there. The 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 sort of thought experiment that Tim did around stabilizing his shoulders overhead through a handstand um, came true. Um, the, the theory was tested and he's never dislocated it since. And that sort of led us down there's this route of, I know you want to talk a little bit about it as we go into it, so I won't steal the thunder, but um, building bullet, bullet, bulletproof shoulders, there's... there's uh, we're starting to now unpick and, and try and do a little bit of our own research into into what are the benefits and, and why that is being the case. Um, but we've certainly, I guess, ourselves living proof and then also the athletes that we've been, been using it with as well, uh, the benefits of body weight training, the closed capacity chain, we'll get into that a bit more detail later. But um, yeah, it's been it's been a fun, a fun journey and uh, that's sort of where we are, where we're at today. Nice. So, Jacko, the the transition from playing to not playing, how how was that for you? Do you find it quite difficult? And the only reason I ask is there's been a couple of people who I haven't, I knew you played, but previous guests who've made that transition and we've spoke about it, and one was last week was a guy at Crystal Palace who played like 15 years, League One, League Two kind of level, and then instantly found himself back in a professional club. And it was very, it seemed very seamless, which wasn't my experience, probably because I wasn't the one who decided that it was going to end, whereas um, Scott, it it did. But how was that for you? What was that transition like for you? Yeah, I think it's it's something that I, uh, yeah, say you go through an experience and everyone probably has a slightly different experience. Um, in rugby particularly uh, and it's the same across many 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 sports unless you're sort of um, you know an absolute big international hitter that you're and even those guys you're like you know you still see Johnny Wilkerson on TV doing punditry you know is that because he needs the money or is it because he just wants something to do it's almost sort of irrelevant that basically the the long and short of it is we're all going to need a job after we finish these careers um, in sport and my personal view is that we it's getting better from from what I've heard from some of the younger lads I've spoken to before, but we're not that well equipped across many sports, partly because we just don't have the resources to um, prepare us for what that for that transition, particularly like as I say for myself, it came from um, an injury. I was starting to think about what I wanted to do post rugby, um, but I'd not actually started putting any building blocks in place. Uh, and I didn't want to do. I was looking that I'd done a, I'd done an engineering degree of actually a qualified teacher as well. So I had a career I could have gone into, but I didn't want to go down that route. And so I was sort of starting again, which is the same for someone that say hasn't done anything alongside the rugby careers. And if you're doing professional sport and you're trying to maximise it, the messaging sort of almost rightly so is we're trying to maximise our performances so actually a lot of the time it's trying to take away any external things that are going to impact our performances so potentially not that encouraged to look at what is life going to be like for you after your sport is finished um but so i do think it is i do think it's important that people are 
helped with that and looking looking at that and and it it's it's just the reality that it's gonna it's gonna end at some point whether you have a beautiful career and choose when to retire or whether it it happens to you um i had the added bonus of uh, or difficulty not bonus at all but difficulty of getting over my head injury which um took a few took a while um it was i had my head injury in the august and then it wasn't till the december that i actually announced my retirement um because we were trying to get back to being able to play it then took me a year to be able to run without getting a headache and in all honesty there was there was a period where i wasn't sure whether i couldn't i couldn't read a book i couldn't look at a computer screen i couldn't concentrate on anything so th- there was a period where um i did wonder slightly whether uh, I was always told I'd make a full recovery, but when you're in the mix, midst of it and no one can tell you how long it's going to be, you do wonder uh, whether you'd be able to even... There was a period where I did think, am I going to be able to do a proper job? Uh, That's pretty so scary. It is a massive... Well, but now it feels like a long time ago. Now, you know, I'm absolutely fine now. And now you do handstands for a living. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a proper job, by the way. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's all... It's, it, you know, it, it's all worked out well. It's been a blessing in disguise. Good. So let's talk about School of Calisthenics. So we've had a little bit of a chat around kind of where that came from, but what at what point did you realize this is actually, like you said, this is actually a real job. We could we could potentially make this into a real job. And then, you know, where did it go? What was the initial vision? How was that um, developed over time? Let's have a little chat around around that. Yeah, so it, as I said, it, it grew very organically from a starting Sounds point. Funny, sorry, but it's a, a real job because I'm I'm just laughing at it, but I'm like feel like we're just pretending it's a real job. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a nice fun thing about being sort of having your own business. You get to decide and dictate what it what it looks like. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean we, we laugh about it because when we, when we first started, I mean Jack and I are both ex rugby rugby players, um, and if you know what people who've played rugby look like when they try and do new things, potentially athletic things in the gym, um, particularly around the upper body, um, we, we we both played from sort of nine, ten years old, and there's no background in gymnastics or or anything like breakdance or anything that would actually have been sort of helpful for a transition to calisthenics so we moved just like two broken rugby players who've never done any gymnastics before and people will be able to envisage what that looks like and we're both fairly athletic in, in the sense that we can learn new things but it got to the point where someone came over to us in the gym one day and said what are you boys doing because it looks like you're just pissing about <laughs> which essentially is exactly what we were doing um because <laughs> yeah, at the time there was no one you know these days I guess we maybe see it a little bit more, but there's a lot of people trying to do handstands and, you know, in CrossFit, there's various calisthenics elements and gymnastic elements. Like it's not that weird these days to see someone doing some sort of body weight movement or a, a, a kicking up against the wall or something in a gym. Um, so when was this, Jack? Then, sorry to interrupt. Um, so that's, this is like five, six years ago. Yeah. Okay. When we just yep. very first started and there was nobody in our gym. You know, we were sort of, doing stuff on the machines and stuff like just what we could like hanging off the side of a lap pull down trying to do a flag or whatever because there wasn't any equipment but we were just getting uh getting creative um, nice. yeah so yeah so from there we, we sort of put some time in and then uh people just asked us if we would put a course on and, and because everyone knew that we were strength and condition coaches in the gym we were sort of starting to use what we'd learned from Paralympic sports to sort of break down a, a um uh, the, the training process and understand what it was that you actually needed to 
to, to do. And, and that was one of the real struggles that we found when we were coming into calisthenics, that no one really knew what to do if you weren't coming from a background of always having some form of sort of gymnastics experience. So how do you coach somebody who's never done anything before to do a human flag? Um, what are the real sort of elements? And then what training progressions do you need to do to, to put those in place? And, and that was the real vision to start off with, was we were really enjoying calisthenics We've got sort of a few main principles about about what it's all about for us, but one of them it helps people to move better. You can get you can get really strong upper body wise um, from doing calisthenics, and the, and the big one for us was it was fun. We I'd got bored of going in the gym and sort of doing. I'm going to back squat this this next four weeks. What am I going to do? Is it I'm going to do ten reps or am I going to do five reps? And, it, and I just got a little bit tired of doing the same thing and, and program hopping around between different adaptations. And um, calisthenics for us was just about play. We we were going in the gym and we were just having fun, trying to do things and, and moving in different ways, trying to explore that kind of what what can you do with your body. That skill acquisition process was addictive because you, in the early stages of learning to do something you haven't done before, it goes really, really sort of, you, you learn really quickly. So you go from one session to the next of actually seeing like tangible improvement. Whereas anyone who's strength trained for a long time will know that it can take quite a lot of time to put five, 10 kilos on a, on a back squat, for example, or a bench press. Um, and, and the big thing to start off with was just to try and help other people get that enjoyment out of something that we we were massively having a good time with. Um, and that's always been our focus is really on, on, on trying to help beginners to um, to get into calisthenics because it, it can, when you see the Frank Madrano video, it can look intimidating, but that's often just because people don't have a, a progressive and systematic training approach to actually understand how to do some of the stuff. Um, and it's evolved from there now into what we're doing around the sports performance stuff, as Jacko mentioned around, around the shoulders, but, um, it's essentially always been about just helping people to have more fun with their training. So at what point was the kind of light bulb moment? This could actually be something that we can package and, and sell and offer to offer as a product to pro sport, to weekend warriors, to whoever. Um, well, it probably is. The whole thing's been quite a organic process. As Tim said, as we got a little bit better, people that, that, that knew we were S&C coaches, it was like, well, if you're a coach, can you, can you teach me how to do uh, this human flag or whatever it may be? And there was a point, so almost a point bef- slightly before that, where we were trying to figure out, I remember literally Googling or putting into YouTube, you know, when you can't do something, you just YouTube it, it was how to do a human flag. And a, a two, you know, there was a there was probably a few tutorials, but the tutorial we clicked on, you know, recorded. So it was just a guy doing it. Just it looked like he'd give his phone to to his girlfriend in the park and said, "Right, record this." And he went, "This is how you do a human flag," and he just did one. Did it? And you and and you're like, <laughs> okay, so we we were sort of. I mean, we didn't. It wasn't like we scoured the entire universe to find out, but it, it didn't appear to us that there was anyone breaking this down. And actually figuring out what are the building blocks that we need to to develop and, and how do we put this together so that we can do something that seems impossible. And that's sort of where the strapline redefining impossible comes from, that this stuff felt impossible. And we know, you know, to, for us, it felt impossible as well. Um, and we've actually got the, I don't know how long, it's maybe three or four years ago, our first actual workshop we did. We've got a YouTube video and I have to share the link with you where we've got three guys um, doing a, a human flag on day one and then six weeks later, like their first ever attempt and they've won six weeks later. And um, yeah, it's quite staggering the uh, the improvement. Like it surprised us. So that, at that point we were like, 
crikey, this really works. Because they were like, you know, the, the progress they made in six weeks was way beyond the progress we made in six weeks because we were making loads of mistakes as we went. And even now still, we refine the teaching process that we go through and we start to to learn and understand more stuff. Um, and then I think, so that it sort of started with that of in terms of a, what, what did you, to, to use your phrase, weekend warriors thing you said? Yeah, the first course we ever ran was called um, <laughs> Survival Training, Strength Training for Survival in the Urban Jungle which was uh, nice. <laughs> a little bit of just a tongue-in-cheek thing of going, well, if you needed to save your life, like, could you? Could you actually, are you strong enough to pull yourself out, like, up off a balcony or off a cliff edge? And it's it's a bit of fun, but the reality is I'm not sure that a lot of people are strong enough to be able to save their own life these days because what we're doing in the gym doesn't really lend itself to being strong outside of the gym. Uh-huh. Was, at some point during this, during this process, did you think that it would lead to potential more opportunities back in pro sport or was that like that was that did that ever come into the decision making of where to press push this i think in in terms of yeah no where we where we went to push this originally was um you know we would we were you know working in in the in the paralympic pro sport and this was a little sort of side thing that was there was a different market you know for us it was more general fitness market rather than you know, uh, sort of elite Paralympic sport is pretty niche. Um, so we saw it as we saw it as a as an alternative, um, if you like. The sort of then in terms of getting into pro sport, I think there was a little bit of um, how we started using it with some of the athletes that we were working with. And you know, as I said before about Tim's going from discing his shoulder to then never and didn't do it hadn't since. You know, it wasn't like you were also doing some like physio rehab whilst learning to do a handstand. You'd done all of that and it wasn't working. And then this was a very different change. Um, and then we, we had, we've just had a few um, people get in touch. We did some coaches, work with a goalkeeper. Coaches. We've had uh, other S&C coaches get in touch. Um, and then we recently did a piece with the Scottish rugby coaches, S&C coaches and physios. And it's just gradually just spreading through i think a part of it rob was that people were sort of starting to play around with calisthenics like coaches using it seeing what we were doing and then there was countless people starting to who were having conversations with us about it saying when i do calisthenics my shoulders feel better and when i stop they feel worse um and that sort of led me to start to to think about well, my own experience and Jack has had his fair share of shoulder issues as well. And then we just, I did a bit of a, a lit review and said, right, well, let's start, start trying to understand what is it that we're dealing with. Um, and that brought out some, some really interesting things, which gave us a, a bit of an evidence base to then start to formulate our sort of, the, I guess the theories that we, we, we experienced from, from trying it to actually going, well, what is the sort of the physiological mechanism behind why we're starting to feel like the shoulders are, are, are improving as a result of training like this. Yeah, and I think there was a lot of, like you said, there was a lot of other S&C coaches that were just like us that once, you know, what once once I wasn't playing rugby, what was my reason for training? It was, it, you know, I, I don't know. what What is this? It's just you don't have to be that specific because there's no game of the weekend. I think there was a lot of other S&C coaches in a similar position to us that like trying out different ways of training, had seen some of, seen some of our stuff and thought, okay, that looks... I'll, I'll, have a little play around with that myself and actually went on that own their own journey that was similar to ours and sort of as tim said we got the feedback started being that there is definitely a there's a, a benefit to the to the shoulder and the upper extremities core as well we can talk about that 
was a little bit different to the, what they were what we were all doing before um and you know we we feel like there's definitely a place for it um as part of um part of upper body programs to you know just like someone might always want to have an olympic lift in someone's program for whatever reason we we feel that there's benefits for for the shoulder with with calisthenics mm-hmm. so let's have a little chat around building bulletproof shoulders and it'd be interesting to interesting to start i know you've mentioned that the kind of lit review but your own experiences and th- that journey that you, you've you've been on to kind of fix your own issues and how that's played a part in building this um philosophy around shoulder health uh, yeah, so I, I guess it kind of started with, with, with my shoulder background. I first dislocated my shoulder at university while I was playing rugby, I think would have been about 2001. Um, had a number of dislocations off the back of that, which then led to my first surgery. Uh, I actually lived abroad working as a scuba diving instructor after university for a while. <laughs> so my rugby career was put on hold, then came back and then started playing again and then started dislocating my shoulder again, uh, led to another second surgery, uh, slap repair on, on both occasions. Um, and I just, and, and my final dislocation was I was snowboarding, um, hit a, hit a little kicker badly at the end of the day and, and popped it. And at that point was pretty sort of, um, down in the dumps about it because if anyone's had a shoulder reconstruction and then they enjoy training they'll know that it's a six to nine month return back to actually being able to do anything half decent with it um and i just really i couldn't face going through the surgery again to be honest I, I, it was uh it was it was pretty depressing so i was away my wife's south african we were down in cape town and, and i was just decided i'm going to try and learn a handstand because if i can do that it's something new but also it would give me some confidence that i've got a, a more stable shoulder because all the physio stuff I'd been given hadn't worked. It kept on dislocating, even even to the point where I, I dislocated my shoulder doing a, a snatch drill on my UKSCA lifting workshop with an unloaded oh, bar wow. um, down the, the depths of the velodrome in Manchester um, with Gil Stevenson. Um, so not a not a great moment in my SNC career as a new coach popping a shoulder on my, on my workshop. Um, and it, it just sort of went from there. And, and it was, I remember we were in the gym the first time we started trying to play around with the human flag and i said to jacko look this is the position my, my shoulder used to dislocate in like overhead externally rotated i don't actually know if it's going to stay in um but i was at that point where i thought well let's just give it a go and, and we'll see and over the next sort of like year or so there was no light bulb moment where i thought all of a sudden oh my shoulder feels amazing now it was just sort of gradual progress of just, just having far more confidence in my shoulder um and not feeling like it was going to it was unstable not having episodes of it just like uh, like shutting down on me when i was training um and it, yeah, it, it just grew over a period of time where it's just I had absolute confidence. Whereas to the point now where I could do a human flag without any prep work and move in and out of the position. Um, so there's a lot of control, a lot of stability there. And it, what's interesting for me is I, I don't know if the slap repair that I had done last is still intact because I have dislocated it since. But that was before I started my calisthenics training. And Jack always puts a caveat on this is I don't play rugby anymore. So the major cause of me dislocating my shoulders isn't part of my life. However, that I can do a lot of things now with my shoulders that I would never have been able to do um, previously. Yeah, essentially, to actually test this theory properly, 
you need to get your kit back on. I need to just belt you and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> we should do that. That would be a great video. You run full pelt at me in the garden, and I just stick my arm out. Well, we had, we had a, there was a, there was a drill. But there was a uh, we had Tim Stevenson as a, the former England uh, player as a coach for maybe two years. Stimson. Not Stimson. What did I say? Stimson. Oh, Stimson. Tim Stimson. And he I was had, thinking there's a doppelganger here. Yeah, no. Stimson. There was a, he said there was a drill they used to do at England one year called sitting ducks in the backs. You had to run, they pick a line, one guy with the ball, one guy tackler, and you had to run on the line and you were not allowed to move. So you had to, it was just a who could win the collision. So you're running down the line and this guy's like just got to belt you and it's like you either win the collision or you don't. <laughs> so we could do that. Wowzer. So so in terms of the, the stuff that didn't work initially, and let's let's kind of open this up more globally, issues with traditional shoulder training and how this, the, the philosophies that you've built off the back of your experiences kind of make, make improvements on that traditional um, training itself? Yeah, I think it's – if we just sort of take it from a, a – like a top level if we if we understand a little bit more about the architecture of the joint and actually respect the shoulder for what it is in terms of its mobility stability requirements um i think the real key comes down to it, and this this came out of a conversation it was summarized beautifully by um dr ian horsley over just a random cup of coffee when we're t- chatting shoulders and, and he was saying you've probably got athletes all over the institute and we're talking about the eis at this time um who have got shoulders that are probably have got labral tears or a number of different issues going on um but he said the major thing which is going to affect an athlete's ability to to to, uh, to not dislocate a shoulder is the level of neuromuscular control and and your ability effectively to keep the ball in the socket and i think that's one thing where we 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 don't always with this traditional forms of training respect with the shoulder in that it has so much mobility and therefore needs a huge amount of stability um and neuromuscular control to be able to keep it moving in the right shapes in, in a stable in a stable position, and a lot of my physio stuff of being sort of your traditional right. Well, yeah, you're going to do you're going to try and line you back, and you're going to balance the stability ball on your hand, and yeah, that's great from a proprioception perspective. But where the where the gap that we see f- lies is that you're going to get back post operation or post injury. You're going to do your early stage rehab. There comes a point where you're just not prepared to go back into a full SNC environment, and then even further on from that, you're not going to go back in, not ready to go back into a place like a game of rugby where you've got a, a huge amount of, of, of chaos, effectively, where you don't know where the force is going to come from. So even from a, a physio perspective, we've got controlled drills in in sort of a lot of in, our, in structured planes of motion. Um, the gym often we go our strength training will will be in a sagittal plane if we're going to press overhead and. A lot of I think coaches are, in my experience, can be fairly under-equipped in terms of scaling stability in the gym because we'll do our shoulder stability work, which might be a, a two kilo um, single arm scaption or something like that. But then we're still going to go and try and push 70, 80 kilos overhead in the military press. And we're quite happy for those numbers to scale on the strength side, but we actually don't have a lot of tools to scale the stability components of, of what we're doing around the shoulder. What calisthenics does, it actually bridges that whole gap. You have to be able to move well. So if you want to do a handstand, you've got to get good range of movement overhead. So that means getting stronger end ranges. You've got to be able to control the joint through those positions. And, and we get the benefits of a closed kinetic chain environment to do that. And you have to be strong. If you're going to go and do any of the movements that, we, that we're talking about within calisthenics, you're going to have to be able to put some force down and then control that joint 
in these sort of outer range positions. And I just think that sets up what, what we've now sort of coined a phrase of bomb-proof shoulders, of being strong in a number of different shapes, um, uh, which is what, as, as I think, the shoulder actually really needs rather than being strong to press overhead. But if, if someone's going to come and try and tackle you from, from behind and you're going to turn around and try and hand them off, have we actually got any strength in that position or stability in those ranges? So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Tim and Jacko. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discuss where calisthenics fits into the overall strength and conditioning program. Continue to discuss some uh, progressions and regressions around um, certain calisthenics movements. Then we finish off with a chat around transfer of strength to sports performance and some core strength training. Again, progressions and regressions give you some ideas of, um, of the thoughts of these guys and some discussion around whether isolated work for core stability in uh, air quotes is actually needed but just before we do get into part two with tim and jacko just want to say a big thanks to black box fitness for sponsoring this episode today so black box fitness are a sports performance equipment manufacturer based in belfast in northern ireland and i recently took my second trip over to belfast to see the guys at black box because i was so impressed with the work that they do and the, the work that they actually manufacture in, in belfast got some really really cool projects on the go all around the world and the quality and quantity of the equipment that they are churning out in Belfast is super super high so if you're looking for a full gym fit out or just extra bits to add to what you've already got bars bumper plates um, even racks and platforms definitely check out the guys at black box and if you want to see any of their current projects head over to their instagram page which they are at BLK Box Fitness. You can have a little look there and see some of the projects they've got going on. But I was really, really impressed, so uh, I'm sure you will be too. Also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for also sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force play testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. So, for for someone that's not been through the the kind of issues that you have shoulder wise, or many other people have shoulder wise, what would be the kind of starting point? I know that's a very loose question, but what would be the starting point to introduce someone into this type of training, and then where would um, you go from there? Yeah, well, I just wanted to just to throw one additional thing that is, I guess, it is related to that. That, um, like myself, I came into to this uh, off off the back of a rugby career where um, I'd broken my scapula in, in two places and dislocated AC joint of one of my shoulder injuries, and I, the physio, did a great job, and and, and Tim would say the same thing: great job in getting us back to the point of like I've got okay, I've now got full range of motion, and you know I've done my isolated rotator cuff work. 
But I then went back onto the field with a massive strapping on my shoulder. And actually, anytime someone, I remember the, the coach saying to me, what are you doing? You're like, you, you need to hit the guy with the right shoulder there. And I was coming across and hitting them with the left because I just didn't know what was whether my shoulder would just blow up again. And I hadn't, you'd, it, it's that gap to getting us from, okay, now you've gone through your rehab. How do we actually, as Tim says, like scale that intensity of the, the stability demand to get us ready for what you actually want to do in the gym with your SNC coach, what you want to be able to do on the field of play or whatever it is sport that you do. And I, when I when I've started trying to do a handstand, for example, where if you haven't got you know good shoulder range of motion, you can't you can't get into a full uh, shoulder flexion. You're not going to have a good decent handstand alignment. And being tight from rugby, being told by um, a by somebody, a physio or whoever, to say, you need to work on your flexibility, you need to work on your ability because of X, Y, and Z, was never enough until it was like, I wanted to do a human flag, I wanted to do a handstand. I was like, I'll work on my shoulder mobility all day long if it means that I can then do a human flag because I've got some motivation for it. Does that make sense? And, yeah, you know, Consistency is one of the biggest things and having that goal um, 100% like has helped me change how how I move Um and then the strength side of it goes goes on top of that. Um, I mean, in terms of where someone would start with, say, a little bit of uh, hand balancing, we we work a, a proce- through a process of um, starting at the bottom and, and sort of build our foundation and just getting used to uh, taking taking more weight on three hands and using your hands to using your hands like feet. And the brain likes to to uh, you know Tim's done a lot of. Uh, research into how the how we like to learn new skills and how the brain actually what what it wants to or the steps that it needs to go through to to learn new things more effectively and one of the things is give it in a scenario that it that it already it can attach a, a movement to or it already knows the the position so we all know what a press up how to do a press up or hold ourselves at the top or middle portion of a press up in our frog stand which is our sort of starting position for for learning a handstand our upper body and trunk is in exactly the same position as the top of our or midpoint of our of our push-up. So the brain's like, okay, I know what this is like. It knows how to push and create force there. We're just going to change the, the the leg position and bring our knees and, and and push them up onto our onto our elbows. So it's a familiar type of position. Um, but then what is really unfamiliar is having no support from your feet on the ground. And so that's like the one change one thing and, and get used to that. And it gives you the opportunity to use your hands like your feet in terms of balancing and just start to explore what does that feel like. Uh, it increases the load through the shoulder gradually, um, and but you don't have to worry about the difficulty of balancing in a full handstand, um, but you can get the benefits of that closed kinetic chain position for the shoulder. So take us through a bit of a pro- progression from there. Where would you where would you move from there? Uh, so if you if you're gonna go from from frog stand to start off with, um, so feet off the floor, but balancing it in sort of like a tuck position, um, you can then start to scale that by taking one knee off um, and, and maintaining that that balanced position. You can then take two knees off, and and to just to do that is is a fairly sort of um, is it there's a pr- amount of time which is going to be required to build the strength in that shape and the control in that the, in that balanced position. 
So that would be the foundation of our bottom section of the handstand. At the same time, you can then kick up to a wall. So we're using the wall for some support, some feedback, and then practice your straight alignment. You can start to take your feet off the wall gently so that you're you're learning that fine motor control of actually what the freestanding balance is going to feel like. And then a piece in the middle is just to try and bridge those things. And like Jacko mentioned before about an Olympic lift, it's real simple in, in the same process of we'll often learn an Olympic lift by learn the first pull and then we learn the catch and then we think about putting the transition together to link it all together there's the still the same skill acquisition process in play we're just going to build that foundation from the bottom and then have to learn that transition of how we move from that frog stand into a full handstand and, and we're sort of like we do we probably kind of uh, stack the deck on the strength component of our calisthenics training so we like this idea of going frog stand to handstand because what am i going to want to do next we could get people into handstands quicker by just allowing them to, to kick up and then letting them just learn how to hold a balance. But when you can do a kick-up handstand, all you can really do is a kick-up handstand. We won't want guys to be able to start doing handstand push-ups or different more progressive strength-based handstand variations. If you learn to go from frog stands and then build the strength to be able to press out into a full handstand, you've already got some of that strength components in the locker, which you can then go and do some more with effectively um and the, the thing that underpins all of this is, is it's the skill acquisition side is, is really sexy and it's addictive because you can people get stuck in it particularly in a handstand is they just keep they want to do more of it we always say to people don't forget to get strong building that that strength in vertical pushing patterns is an absolute sort of staple across the programs and, and something which people need to prioritize because Skills in calisthenics are a lot, lot easier if you've got a big bank of strength to lean on. Yeah, and as Tim was saying before about that strength through range, that if you're just kicking up into a handstand, you're only ever really just loading up in that sort of full overhead position. What happens when you start dropping down or the shoulder wants to go through range um, or we want it to be strong through range? So starting in a in a frog stand position, we've got a certain degree of um, – of, uh, of of angle and range that we're going to then naturally drive and take the shoulder through to get then into our handstand, um, and then you know we go we go deeper still. One one of the things that restricts your deep position, you know, if you were doing a, an overhead press, you would take the bar, you know, all the way down uh, to his chest. You wouldn't stop halfway, sort of around your head height. But when you're doing a handstand push up, as an example, uh, or a pike push up, the floor is going to dictate how low you can go so we're looking at raising our raising our hands up so we can start to actually go through through fuller uh, ranges of motion which is building strength through that whole position rather than just giving us like one end point of of a handstand that the end point of the handstand might be the motivational thing for for the person but actually we want to make sure that we're giving them uh, a rounded strength approach to how they're going to actually get there so that we know that when they get there, they get what they want, but we've also built a more robust shoulder for them as well. Mm -hmm. So just going back to what Tim said about um, not forgetting to actually get strong. So where did, where does this, in terms of programming for an athlete, where does this, what you've just mentioned over the last 10 minutes of kind of developing that handstand, where does it fit in the wider program with the traditional strength work that might go on in a rugby club or gymnastics club or whatever that may be? Yeah, I think it all comes down to the coach's periodization of, of how they want to factor it together. Um, 
I think we've we touched on the handstand there, but the other sort of major part of calisthenics that we would base our movements around would be hanging work or on the rings as well. So the handstand is a great example, but there's lots of stuff people can do just by incorporating more hanging or ring work in a program, which would be sort of fall within the realms of calisthenics potentially as well. Um, in terms of sort of the periodization of it, we, is, it obviously is going to work well from an early set, early stage of a, of, a, of a cycle, for example, or a season where you're looking to try and build that robustness and upgrade the chassis if you want to sort of term it in, the, in those regards, um, which is then going to allow you to put some more horsepower in down the line. So we often sort of would use it as our, if it take a season from sort of September onwards up until that Christmas block, but I, I even started with it right at the beginning when I first started putting some some of this sort of work into a training program is I'd do my prep work with an athlete. And then before we would get into the main part of the session, I had a box on my training program that just said athletic development. And I just wanted to do something which was going to help the athletes to move differently, challenge them in some way to bring some get them to think about doing something that they couldn't currently do. And I used to put hand balancing in there and it was, um, it was one exercise. It was just a frog stand and we spent five minutes just playing around with it. What I know now is that I was getting quite a lot of sort of benefits from a shoulder activation perspective, from some stability, the athlete was getting challenged. So we bring a number of different sort of um, psychosocial and performance benefits in as well. Um, and then we just crack on with what we were doing before, but it could be as simple as, as just, putting more pulling work into your um, upper body strength phases. So rather than doing a lap pull down, we're just playing around with some more pull-up progressions. Or rather than doing a vertical press with a military in a military fashion or with dumbbells, we're going to go and we're going to try and work on some handstand push-ups instead. So they can be they can be like for like. Um, I just, uh, we would argue that because of the, the closed kinetic chain benefits and some of the, if calisthenics is done well, it should look beautiful. Like movement should look beautiful, but it comes from the, from the words of beauty and strength. And I think what you're forced to do within some calisthenics progressions, and even if we're just focusing on those that are building more strength, is you have to connect the whole system together and you can't cheat it. You, it's, it keeps you very humble in the fact that if you, if you can't create the, the connections between the segments of the body to be able to move well, then you're going to have a hard time with calisthenics and it shows people up quite quickly, which forces you to have to earn the right to progress. Whereas we often know we'll see athletes in the gym all the time who just try and put a little extra plate on a bar, even though they probably don't have the right to have that on, but they'll try and eke out that extra rep or, or they'll just try and find a way to compensate through that movement pattern. So it, it sounds all very complicated in the skill acquisition process, but it really can be very simple as well by just creating some simple substitutes for, for exercises that you already have in the program. And some of the, some of it, as, as Tim was saying there about some of the hanging, like took about more pulling in there's when, when we start to look into it and explore some of these movements, it's a lot of the time it's adding a lot more variety rather than just going, Oh, a pull up. It's, you know, the, there's so much more that we can actually do than just staying in sort of the standard uh, positions. Not to say that we, you know, we do weighted pull ups to help us get better at muscle ups, but we're also exploring different things like archer and tight rider pull ups and what's it like uh, skinning the cat. So being on the rings, taking the shoulder through that full range of motion that it's got, but you controlling your body and moving your body around the shoulder rather than just moving your arm uh, around the body. And this it can you can scale it as much as you want we can do low level stuff that could be part of a warm up or we can we can scale the strength side of it it just has to be what's appropriate for the athlete for their sport um, i remember one example when we did the uh, 
our presentation at the UKCA conference two years ago. And there was, I, f- I forget his name, the Australian S&C coach. He said with the Broncos, they would do it. He was like, oh, we were doing, yeah, we were doing war walks and we were doing this and we were doing it as our prep work. And then we'd go and do like heavy bench press. So for them, he, he was doing it years ago. Um, it just maybe wasn't really, wasn't deemed or called calisthenics, but he was seeing the benefits of getting some load through the shoulder and the hand being fixed on the floor and then take as, as good prep work for the shoulder before then going into some of the traditional lifts that they were doing. And um, that was, I guess that was just something that was really encouraging for us. And he was saying that's when they won the league. <laughs> so it, was, was that Dan Baker? Uh, yes, that's right. Dan Baker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did, yes. Was he wearing his horrendous shirt and uh, half cut at the time? Oh, was that? No, he was. Pre- we can't it was in the morning. On that, Rob. It, was, <laughs> it was in the morning. It was in. It was Friday morning. It wasn't. But the both of them things could still apply. <laughs> <laughs> it is an Your interesting words. question, though, about like if you can teach athletes have a little bit more control in a handstand or whatever. Um, what does that do for your snatch or for your for your clean and press? If, if you want to work on those movements, we, our argument is that. And we've seen it so many times. If you upgrade that stability component, you can produce more force. And I just think that's something where where I go back to the point of how equipped are we as strength and conditioning coaches to really scale shoulder stability to a, not 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 to an A level. Okay, yeah, we might have some shoulder stability exercises, but properly scale it. Like if you can see a deep handstand push up, and not to say that everyone needs to do a deep handstand push up, but the example is that if you can get to these levels of pushing this 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 capacity. Should, I think it will open up some really interesting opportunities around strength development in your traditional lifts. Yeah, and do we have it? Do we have those tools that are engaging for the athlete that actually then they want to do them, um, rather than giving them something that doesn't stimulate them and, and, and is a little bit, you know, I dare I say, boring sometimes. It, it can be. Mm-hmm. Just want to make it clear that statement is a Rob Pacey statement. That's nothing to do with school calisthenics. Uh, the Dan Baker stuff and the horrendous shirt, but we'll move on from that. Just want to make sure you're not going to get not liable. Um, but um, in terms of that that buy-in, it seems it seems that that would be that would fit really well. In like you say, uh, Tim, in a very much an athletic development um, youth development setting. In terms of the engagement, is that something that you've seen a real kind of upsurge in? in in engagement from maybe pro sport or even younger athletes on the kind of more public end. Uh, yeah, I think so. Like swimming through one is a big one of that. We've um, we've done a lot of work in swimming over the years, and um, my wife used to run a business called Swim Skills, where we would have sort of uh, young sort of age group swimmers um, that would come and get a day of coaching from a, a typically like an Olympic coach, and there'd be a high level swimmer there, and, and then we used to run the, the the land training as they would call it component, and we would include some calisthenics in that. And we used to have to sort of we had, often we'd have three days, um, and we used to I used to kind of hold some of the calisthenics stuff back, particularly the hand balancing, because if I gave it to them first thing on day one, definitely from a winner in terms of getting engagement as a coach, but it was all they wanted to do for three days. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, can we do a lateral lunge now because that's good for your breaststroke kick? And they're like, no, let's do a frog stand and a wall walk um, because it's fun. It, it, it's like play. Um, so, and I think there's, we've, we've had some really good support from a number of coaches working in that youth development, um, sector, particularly using it with athletes, getting really good engagement with their, with their junior programs and starting to sort of see it as a real valuable part of their, of their programs, um, which is super exciting because we, when the workshop that we did with Scottish rugby recently was around, yes, we're going to talk bomb proofing shoulders, but, um, as Andy Boyd puts it, it was how 
else do we also enhance the athletic profile um and we want we want athletes to come through with these movement skills because as any strength and conditioning coach and, uh, and i stand by this statement though if we get athletes that come through to us at 16 17 18 that can move well getting strong is not that difficult we can we can do that where we have problems is that if we get athletes that come through that don't have movement options um then we've got a big job to do because we're trying to help them to to improve movement quality so we can do more stuff but there's also performance demand of having to get them strong for that level that they're now currently trying to play at and i think if we can do a better job at, at youth development stages of just equipping the guys with more movement options or physical literacy um we set ourselves up for, for better long-term success nice um just moving on to core stability training and i think that's still something that probably provides a lot of discussion in the strength and conditioning community whether you know i i squat and deadlift so i don't need to do any isolated work and just wanting to know your opinion on that and how that's kind of formed some of the work that you guys do in this same calisthenics realm uh i think we probably uh are the benefits that we've sort of seen is more related to challenging the core and that, and and spinal stability as part of the kinetic chain. So how can we, the exercises or the, the, the challenges that we're giving ourselves is more around using it rather than in isolation, actually as part of the, the link within the kinetic chain. And a lot of the, a lot of the things that we're doing in calisthenics really do challenge your core stability um, from from that point of view. And I think that when you that's you know if if someone's got like a real deficiency and we need to the same way you might do some isolated rotator cuff work, it's also then important that we integrate that into the rest of the kinetic chain. It's it. Which, my opinion would be that it's, it's the same with the core stability. If we've got a, a weakness there that we might do some isolated work, but it's then a case of how do we, again, scale the stability, same as with the shoulder, and how do we make sure that it is integrated into the connect chain and whether that's um, with your, uh, whether it's with, you know, hanging from the bar or whether it's with your hand fixed on, on the floor or we're using the rings, there's the nice thing about calisthenics is that we can, we can challenge that in, um, in many different ways and the majority of the time if you don't have the core and trunk strength available to you you're not going to be able to do the movement that you're trying to do um so you can't you either you know with them got to with them got to scale it back but it almost gives you that that ability to to understand how well am I actually, you know, what is my, what is my trunk strength and my spinal stability really like? Am I able to perform this movement or not? Do you guys do any initial, and you obviously do, but um, we've talked to us about it here, initial assessments so you can identify where the weak links actually are and how that may play into this core stability training conversation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our S&C background will still sort of is very much part of our training approach and, and, um, and philosophy. So our assessments, if we're working, if we're applying some of this into an athlete environment will be exactly the same as, as what we would choose to use like traditionally, whether that be overhead squat assessments, lunge assessments. We do a lot of work around shoulder shoulder um, positions and range of movements and, and, and just starting to identify any dysfunction within the kinetic chain. 
And I think to the point where, that Jacko made around that integration of actually understanding what, what do we need that, that let's, as you see, the term core stability, what's its function and its role? Um, and calisthenics forces you to start to think about integrating that. So just as Jacko was talking, my, my example would be, I see people all the time doing pull-ups and they've got 20, 30 kilos around the waist, the, the spine's all bent out of shape because the lats just cranking on super hard and we've, we've lost control of, of spinal stability, which is often, I think, a, a more descriptive term of what we're trying to talk about. Um, I mean, yeah, okay, great. We've done, a, we've done some work in starting to improve lat strength, but how effective are we going to be actually be able to transfer that lat strength into the chain if the core is not operating in the same movement pattern? So swimming is a great example of that. We've got super heavy pull-ups done with a bent back when we go in the water, what we want the guys to be able to do is hold a good body position and streamline or, or whatever. Our guarantee of transfer training effect into that environment is probably not great because we we haven't we haven't sort of upgraded that that spinal or core stability at the same rate that we're actually allowing the prime mover strength to, to scale. Um, so I think it just dials it back to understanding well, what's the job of the core if you want to if you want to talk about that and what we're doing in calisthenics is just it's just high level core training but integrated into into wider patterns so an example that we might use for, for a more isolated exercise could be a ring rollout so feet on the floor holding the rings and just like lowering out into a straight body position uh, the closer the, to the floor you get the harder it becomes but we're also what we're doing with that is yes we're, we're resisting sort of spinal extension um, as we as we drop forwards but we're also then getting quite a high level of shoulder stability at the same time and we know that from a kinetic chain perspective, the core and the shoulder and the hip need to work well together. So rather than doing something very isolated on the floor, which is um, like we would even start with a dead bug movement for something uh, for a beginner, we're looking to try and scale it towards incorporating multi-joint approaches and maintaining spinal stability within those patterns. Nice. So where, where would you go from that ring rollout? Is that what you called it, ring rollout? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the, yeah. the higher level ones. And, and okay. we often use that as a sort of, uh, that might be a supplementary exercise for learning a lever, for example, if you wanted to do a, a back lever or a front lever. Um, body angle very easily. Like that's one of the nice uh -huh. things about the, the rings. Literally, a beginner could do it as well. They're just, their body angle is going to be an awful lot more upright than say someone that's more, that's more advanced. And that's probably one of the things that, um, the difference between traditional weight training or weightlifting and calisthenics bodyweight training is that the the marker of what have i what have i lifted this week so you can write a number down when you when you're lifting whereas in in calisthenics it might be like the body angle is increased for your for your ring rollout as an example and you could write that number down as an angle but you i'm i'm I can be honest enough to say that I'm not measuring my own body <laughs> angle. I'm great. I mean, you could, but you're probably not going to. And so it's a little bit more, uh, it's, it's less rigid in that respect, but that rigidity a lot of the time is what people like, because it's like, I did this number last week and then yeah. I did this number this week. Um, that, that's really interesting. Sorry, Jacko. In the, in the, in the world of everything being tracked, everything being data heavy, how does that, like you said, the, the almost the inability to put a, 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 def, a definitive number on it does that put people off, or do you, how do you kind of work that, especially within like a, a professional program that is maybe centrally funded and needs these objective measures to be able to keep accessing this money and all that kind of stuff? How does that play out in this world of calisthenics? Yeah, it's a challenging one because we, we've had that exact conversation a number of times. I, I do some. Um, 
consultancy work for British Para Swimming, and we've we've had that that same thing of how do we how do we monitor our gym programs effectively? And, and if we're sticking some weight on a bar, then it's pretty straightforward. We can we, we know what those numbers are going to look like. But if we're moving body position slightly in a ring row, for example, that can change quite. We we, we haven't got very accurate markers on what that actually looks like. So how many like arbitrary units, for example, if we're going to start to, to look at those sorts of numbers, are we actually lifting? Um, what we've, what we kind of like came down to is that we, we probably need to work session RPE um, effectively and just sort of get the athletes to start to understand how hard are they working, how much more could they have done. If we start thinking about working towards maximum repetitions or reps in reserve systems, something like that, where it's probably a little bit more subjective, um, but we, I think we have to trade that off with this obsession of collecting data to actually starting to make understand and embrace some complexity and going well. It's not always going to be that easy to put a number against something. But the trade off being, I think that this exercise has got value, and I'm I'm, I'm comfortable not being able to put an exact number against it because of these are the performance benefits that I think I'm getting. Um, and that that would be my approach, at least. In, in, a, in a sport like swimming, I, I found it very difficult to try and accurately measure every component. And it might be within a program that we've still got some lifts that we can put like really good monitoring data against. Um, but that, that it's very difficult, I think, to try and find one system of, of monitoring which is going to be effective across all exercises if you're starting to include some calisthenics in your program. Sweet. Well, there shouldn't to- be a reason not to do it. I think ultimately, yeah, I, I, we we use, we we use a phrase in, in our coaches' workshop around sort of resisting reductionism um, and embracing complexity, and I think that's that's something from a, a human movement perspective that we get quite passionate about. That we we can't always, as science and research have sort of led us down this this route of of wanting to boil it all down to these these small components which we can control. If you actually sort sort of take a step back and look at the human movement system, there's an amount of complexity in there that we need to just embrace. Um, and and that, I think that transcends it. Well, it transfers into how we we look at monitoring in an SNC environment as well, because we're dealing with movement. And and again, like just to throw an extra one on this, our, our experiences in Paralympic sport. So when you've got somebody who might be like have an amputation through the through the knee or have an arm missing, um, monitoring becomes much much more difficult. So it's um, we're sort of accustomed to having that's our environment that we've come from um, as well, where it's not always just very simple. Of, of these other things that we can measure because all the athletes are different. Yeah, we, we don't do all of our our coaching by numbers and you know if has someone got stronger okay that can that could be a number but what about do they move better like I can I can I'm looking at them and I know math I can see him like he he or she is is moving better that's going to be that's that's of benefit um and uh I lost my train of thought. I was going to say something else about um, about the, not not being so worried about those about numbers all the time. Oh no, that was it. The, the, um, there is some research where they've done like two groups, like bench press and then not bench press, but close connected chain, and then both groups improved bench press, but the close connected chain improved um, like shoulder stability. Um, so even like you're you're going to have some of your traditional lifts probably in your program you're hopefully going to see an improvement in those traditional lifts that can that can match that so it doesn't have to be all one or the other 
Yeah, that was that was an interesting study actually. It was, it was on softball players, and they'd um, they they both did bench press um, as a as base mark tester, and then the 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 open they did closed versus open ketic chain group. Open ketic chain group um, didn't make any improvements in sort of throwing velocity or rotation speed, whereas a closed ketic chain group did, even though that they were obviously training closed ketic chain movements, but the open ketic chain tests of throwing a baseball and they both saw in similar improvements in in the bench press so there's just just a sort of good closed classic chain actually improved across the performance tests whereas the, the open classic chain decreased performance in all of them but the strength gains were comparable so it's it just goes to show that there are there is a number of different ways to to start to change these these parameters but we we have to be unless we can become open about exploring some of those and it's going to be difficult to sort of branch out into these other areas potentially. Mm-hmm. Do you know who the authors on that then papers or that paper was? Do you? I do. It is. I've got it here in front of me. Uh, you can propos uh, propsky. I think it is. I can send it through to you. Yeah. No, I can. I can just try um, to so guess. People thinking. I'd like. Yeah. Look at that. Uh, uh, Procopy, so P R O K O P Y, and it was done. I think it's a 2008 study. Uh, it was title was uh, "Closed Ketic Chain Upper Body Training Improves Throwing Performance of NCAA Division One Softball Players." Nice, love it. Well, we're past the hour that I I promised you, but I can I can just I just know there's going to be tons of questions for you guys based on the last hour. What would be the best place for people to go? Where would be the best place for people to go to find out more about you guys and potentially ask any questions and see what other stuff you've got going on? Yeah, so they can, um, people will find us on social if they want to come and get a bit of a feel about what we're around. So if you just search School of Calisthenics on on any of the social platforms, you'll find us. Um, Our website is schoolofcalisthenics.com. And if you want to get in touch with myself or Jacko directly, it's Tim at schoolofcalisthenics.com or David at schoolofcalisthenics.com. We should have made that Jacko at schoolofcalisthenics.com. Would have, people think he's got like an a, a alter ego. Alter I've, replied ego. To, I've replied to someone before and they were like, thank you, Jacko, but I was, I was hoping to get hold of David. <laughs> you think just um, his yeah. PA, Jacko's PA. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I need to yeah, just do that. Uh, so yeah, people want to get in touch with and find that like, we are we so if anyone wants to contact us directly through social, it's Jack and I answer those questions. So yeah, it'd be great to continue the conversation. And we've got some free resources as well, Rob. If people want yes. to check them out, we have a yep. on our um, a virtual classroom. We've got an eight week free beginners program, so you, people can can have a look at that. And they, even if if they're if they're SNC coaches or working with athletes at any level that want to start to try and play around with this stuff, that's a really good onboard because. You've got eight weeks of, of just a, a real overview of, of how we sort of approach calisthenics and includes hand balancing, includes rings, it includes some hanging work. Um, and then, yeah, it starts. If you jump on that, you can have a, have a good hunt around and get a feel for what it's all about. Sweet. Yeah, we'll send you the link for that. So you yes. can put that in the show yeah, notes that, if you're happy to that, do that. Yeah, of course. That would be very much appreciated. But yeah, thank you very much for your time, guys. Really appreciate it. And uh, I know you're very busy. Very busy doing what you do, so I appreciate you giving up uh, an hour and a bit, well, probably an hour and a half, given the the embarrassing technical issues at the start of this. You'd think five years in, I'd actually know what I'm doing, but I don't. Not a clue. Tim's actually, Tim's actually held a handstand for the entire time. Not with his head cold, I haven't. <laughs> I would have passed out. Look like me when I go in the sun. Beetroot head. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, thanks for having us on, Robbie. Really appreciate it. It's great to, to be able to come on and have a, have a conversation and more around some of the um, the sports performance benefits of calisthenics. Um, often people sort of interested in progressions towards the human flags, but we, we're really passionate about um, the potential that it has for, as you said, this, this bomb-proofing shoulders and the um, the physical literacy component. So it's, uh, it's great to have that conversation with you. Pleasure. Thanks for coming on. And we'll keep in touch and, and chat soon. Great. Thanks very much, mate. Thanks, guys. Cheers, mate. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 263 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Tim and Jacko for coming on to discuss all things calisthenics. Also, big thanks to Black Box Fitness, Kitman Labs, Hawking Dynamics, and I Measure You for sponsoring this episode today. And more importantly, big thanks to you for your support and giving it me time to listen. I hope you got as much out of this chat with Tim and Jacko as I did. So we've got some cool guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. So make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player and I will chat to you next week.